The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. California is challenging the Environmental Protection Agency over its moves to roll back auto emissions, the state's 10th lawsuit against the agency since President Trump took office. California's AG, Javier Becerra, issued a warning. My message to the EPA and Administrator Pruitt is simple. Do your job. Regulate carbon pollution from vehicles. Defend the clean car standards. Don't tear them up. Sixteen other states and D.C. joined in the lawsuit. And joining me is Deborah Ann Sivis, director of the Environmental Law Clinic at Stanford University. Deborah Ann, the EPA has not changed the rules yet. So why is California filing this lawsuit now? Well, that's right. The rules have not been changed yet. But, of course, the administration's been talking about it for over a year. And in the middle of April, the administration put out a uh, a new uh, announcement saying that they were had reviewed the what's, so, what's called the midterm evaluation for these standards that was put out right at the end of the Obama administration. They've reviewed it, and they're reversing course on it, and they believe that the auto industry will not be able to meet the standards. So that in mid uh, April, that's that's the decision that the um, that, that California and the other states are challenging at this point. And and what's the argument? What are the grounds for the lawsuit? So the the grounds for the lawsuit, I believe, although that what gets filed in the D.C. Circuit is a very short sort of one paragraph listing all the parties saying that they're challenging that April thirteenth determination uh, that that the auto industries will not be able to meet the current standards. And uh, so it's, it's not clear from that document exactly the legal arguments that will be made, but I, but I suspect those arguments will be that uh, the administration does not have uh, sufficient information to su- support a reversal of the, the pretty detailed findings during the very end of the Obama administration. Also, um, it's set to argue the EPA arbitrarily reversed course on April 2nd. Uh, right. Is that a good argument? Um, it, it's an interesting argument. Yes. I mean, I think it's, it's generally the argument that states would make, that, that, that because there's a documented body of evidence that was gathered by EPA before the new administration, that the current administration, in order to reverse decision, has to have enough support. And, the, and their argument is it's arbitrary here because there is not enough support for, for reversing. I, I would say that the, the, I think the defense of the EPA to this particular lawsuit will be there is no final agency action here. And so your, your, uh, your challenge is premature. You have to wait until we actually roll back the standards. So the 1970 Clean Air Act allows California to set its own greenhouse gas emissions regulations because of a legal waiver. And there have been rumblings that the Trump administration may try to revoke that waiver. Which side would have the stronger case in the inevitable court battle that would follow? 
Yeah, my, my sense, of course, we'd have to wait and see what the grounds the administration gives for revocation of the waiver, and I think it is telegraphing that that's coming. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. But my sense generally is that the states, uh, California and other states that would join it, would have the stronger argument because in the Clean Air Act, it, Congress made made it clear that the burden was really on the EPA um, in terms of denying the waiver. That is, the presumption is generally the waiver will be granted, that it's necessary, and it's the burdens on EPA. So given that and given the information that's or that's been used to grant the waiver in the past, I think probably the states have the stronger argument. Let's talk about the auto industry itself. Will weakening the emission standards put U.S. automakers in the future at a disadvantage compared to overseas companies that are advancing the technologies in automobiles? Well, there's certainly an argument that that's, that's true. And, it, of course, it's the auto industry at the start of the current administration that came in very um, strongly and, and asked the administration to freeze standards or roll back standards. And I, I think some in the auto industry are getting some cold feet about that uh, very extreme position for this very reason, that it, it potentially puts the domestic auto industry, um, you know, back, given what's going on in China. China and other places, countries where uh, there's there's a there's a concerted effort to move forward with electric vehicles and and higher mileage vehicles. Deborah, I mentioned that California has sued the EPA ten times since Trump took <laughs> office. Jerry Brown was at the press conference yesterday, and he had some harsh words. Tell us about he spent decades building up his environmental legacy, and he's trying to protect it. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So California um, has its own cap-and-trade program around greenhouse gas emissions and is trying to do, has a low carbon fuel standard, a number of other things um, that the state's trying to do, kind of being out in front of the, where the federal government is and kind of pulling a lot of other states along with it. So that's the reputation of California out there. I would say that the that the fuel economy standards that are the, the heart of this dispute are a big piece of that picture because um, transportation accounts for something like 40% of the greenhouse gas emissions nationally, and the same is true in California. So, um, so the, the governor and the attorney general are really trying to guard uh, that particular piece of California's policy against rollback at the federal level. It's very early in these suits, but has either side won any of the early legal battles? Um, uh, there's not been much in the way of uh, decisions in these suits. As, as I said, one of the things about the current administration is they're pushing stuff out the door that, in my view, is not necessarily fully baked, which doesn't make for a good position in defending a lawsuit. So I think we're going to see as this as these cases move forward that it will be difficult for the uh, administration to win some of these cases. I suspect the states will um, prevail in a number of them. In the in the auto in the instance of the auto industry, just give we have about forty five seconds here. Tell us how this the state suing represent forty three percent of new car sales nationally. So what does that mean for the lawsuit? Right. So that's significant because if if the if the Pruitt 
if Administrator Pruitt rolls back the standards, the national standards, that's when the waiver comes into play. And California plus a number of other states are able to go with the California standards. And so if, um, and as I said, I mean, I think they're likely to win a fight over the waiver. That means that then you've got two sets of standards. Deborah, I'm sorry I have to stop you there. Thanks so much. That's Deborah Ann Sivis, Director of the Environmental Law Clinic at Stanford University. Caravans have been a common tactic for advocacy groups to bring attention to asylum seekers. But the latest caravan of Central American immigrants to arrive at the border has gotten an extraordinary amount of attention, even internationally. That's because President Trump has been using the caravan as a symbol of what he sees as lax immigration laws, a point he reiterated at the White House on Monday. Our immigration laws in this country are a total disaster. They're laughed at all over the world. They're laughed at for their stupidity. And we have to have strong immigration laws. My guest is Rick Sue, professor at the University of Buffalo School of Law. Rick, despite Trump's threats and demands to stop this latest caravan from coming into the country, the immigrants were allowed to enter the country and U.S. officials began processing them on Monday night. Explain why, no matter what the president says, the government has no choice but to consider requests for asylum. So the reason that asylum system is here is because of a treaty that uh, many countries signed. So in this case, it's not just U.S. law, it's uh, all other countries that participate in this. Uh, that was essentially formed after World War II and, uh, you know, dealing with the refugee situation that occurred afterwards. Uh, that essentially allows everyone to make a claim, at least, uh, that they qualify for asylum because they have a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, and if they satisfy, then the government has an obligation not to send them back into harm's way. So even if Congress was actually able to agree on passing tougher immigration laws, the international treaties would play into that. Yeah, I mean, technically the treaties are ratified by Congress. Uh, I uh, I think it'd be very unlikely that in any immigration reform that the particular asylum provision itself uh, and our obligation under international law would be changed. Um, but it's certainly been a useful political sort of uh, tool to talk about general immigration reform as a whole, uh, though none of the proposals in immigration reform uh, with regard to the substance as opposed to the procedure of how we actually process them uh, has ever been proposed uh, recently uh, with regard to asylum. Rick, explain the process of entering the country and seeking asylum, starting with the credible fear interview. Yeah, so essentially what happens is the Customs and Border Protection will do a credible fear interview to just sort of suss out whether or not you, they think an individual has a plausible claim uh, for a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, once that has been uh, passed, established, and they tend to err uh, on the side of uh, allowing individuals to proceed with their claim if there's any plausible claim, uh, then you actually make the claim itself. That would be presented to an immigration judge. They're, of course, backlogged uh, at this particular point. Um, and then immigration judge will make that determination, um, at which point, uh, if it's affirmed, uh, then we have an obligation not to return them. Uh, if it's denied, then they would be removed. So the number of credible fear interviews has soared from 5,000 in 2007 to about 80,000 last year, according to the New York Times. So what, how, how difficult is it to actually get asylum? 
Uh, asylum is relatively difficult to establish. Uh, there's a lot of different criteria, and for this particular wave, uh, which is really coming from Central America, there's a lot of push factors in Central America that's leading to what some people are calling the surge. Um, what the biggest concern is trying to fit what they fear into one of the five categories. So it's not just that you fear for your life, but you fear for your life uh, based on a particular reason that these individuals uh, that are targeting you are targeting you for. Um, trying to prove that, especially when the concern is just about generalized violence, uh, are oftentimes uh, difficult. The administration has complained about what it calls the catch-and-release policies that allow people seeking asylum to be free while their cases are pending. Do you see any shift in policy from the Obama administration to the Trump administration with, with regard to the process of determining asylum claims? Yeah, so there has been some shift going on with regard to determining asylum claims. Um, there are some uh, moves by Jeff Sessions and Department of Justice of trying to, and it seems like he's moving towards, uh, changing some of the criteria of what would qualify under the substantive uh, criteria themselves. Uh, though that hasn't been reported very much, and we're sort of waiting to see what he's going to actually announce, because he's going to be able to make those decisions on their own. As we regard the catch and release, it's uh, sort of a, a difficult prong. Uh, President Obama also struggled with it as well. And certainly, President Trump has released several, uh, two executive orders and a proclam- uh, sort of a memorandum encouraging the elimination of a catch and release. Um, unfortunately, it just seems like the capacity to keep all these individuals in detention, especially with the court backlog, uh, and also because so many of them are families and children, uh, and federal law, along with a settlement, does require specific provisions for children, right? We can't keep them in prison-like uh, facilities. Uh, is really uh, making hard to, let's say, eliminate catch and release, uh, or at least releasing individuals pending their uh, immigration claim. Um, So the Justice Department filed criminal charges against 11 suspected members of the caravan for entering the country illegally. Explain how that's different from the group who actually waited at the border. Yeah, so this is this is actually quite interesting, especially with all the talk about border protection, uh, because for the vast majority of the surge and the vast majority of these individuals in the caravan, what they're actually doing is following the process that's laid out. Uh, so they're presenting themselves to Customs and Border Protection for uh, uh, inspection. Uh, they're making their immigration claim. They're going to go through the, the process, a determination will be made, and they either remain or they get removed. Uh, the 11 individuals, and again, we'll hear more data uh, facts about them uh, maybe in in a few weeks' time, uh, if they try to elude inspection and enter the country uh, without inspection, uh, essentially uh, trying to sneak into the country, uh, then that may subject them to criminal penalties, especially if they had tried to enter uh, before. Um, but what's interesting in some ways with all the talk about border protection is that the vast majority of the surge, and of course all the individuals of the caravan, are actually following the process the way it's set out. Um, and in some sense, they're presenting themselves to customers and border protection as opposed to trying to elude their detection. Rick, uh, from what I've been reading, a lot of the immigrants in the caravan will be, will be talking about the persecution by gangs and gang violence. Is that going to be enough to get asylum? Yeah, the gang violence claim, uh, well, I mean, in some ways the claim itself reflects the fact that there is a substantial increase in violence in the Central American countries, right? So uh, this is the reason why the surge is really coming from Central America as opposed to other countries like Mexico, uh, which has been sort of the focus of concern for a long time. Um, 
The claims themselves uh, really depend on a case-by-case basis. Uh, there have been some claims uh, 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 of gang violence that uh, have successfully claimed that they were persecuting specific individuals because they belong to a social group, a family affiliation, uh, because of some sort of a political opinion, uh, because maybe they spoke out against the gangs or, or tried to make some sort of uh, a move against them. Uh, that isn't entirely just anti-gang, but really sort of expressing a political opinion about how, uh, how things uh, should operate. Um, and it may be actually since a lot of these individuals are coming from Honduras, uh, especially with the political turmoil in Honduras, that some of them may actually be ha- uh, presenting claims uh, based on government persecution, uh, uh, which oftentimes would be an easier case because it falls into political opinion. Uh, but all these things really depend on a case-by-case analysis, um, which is why it takes so much time. Uh, but in some ways, it's why we ensure that the people that we don't remove are the people that uh, really are a threat uh, based on this treaty. Thanks so much, Rick. That's Professor Rick Sue of the University of Buffalo School of Law. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.